Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Father, we lift mm. up this morning. Thank you that you are mm. the king. Dave. I had one announcement. Uh, those of you who know that we got a new roof a while back. It was $32,000, and we were able last week to pay it off 14 months early. So I want to thank you all for your uh, your faithful giving. We appreciate that. Our next thing is we're going to be uh, putting flooring in. So that should if that didn't split the church, that for sure will. <laughs> As you know, I usually only depart from verse-by-verse teaching on Christmas, but I felt this week that I should speak on the subject of being thankful. With Thanksgiving coming up this week, it will be consummated with most of us eating turkey and pumpkin pie. That is, unless you will be celebrating a redneck Thanksgiving. Listen to these five statements I found on the Internet. You might be a redneck at Thanksgiving if, one, you've ever had Thanksgiving dinner on a ping pong table, two, Thanksgiving dinner is possum and dumplings, three, if you have a complete set of salad bowls and they all say Cool Whip on the side, four, your turkey platter is an old hubcap. And finally, on Thanksgiving Day, you have to decide which pet to eat. And I didn't write it. In the secular world, there is a saying that exemplifies humanity's perception on being thankful. What have you done for me lately? It's the idea of forgetting all the past benefits and faithfulness and focusing instead on our immediate circumstances. What have you done for me lately? The problem with that is we can transfer that type of thinking onto God. Yeah, sure, God, you've created me, you've saved me, you've given me eternal life, but what have you done for me lately? The story is told of two friends who bumped into one another one day on a busy street One of them looked very sad, almost on the verge of tears. His friend asked, What has the world done to you, my old friend? The sad man replied, Let me tell you, three weeks ago an uncle died and left me $40,000. 
His friend replied, that's a lot of money. But two weeks ago, a cousin I never knew died and left me 85000 free and clear. His friend was flabbergasted. Man, that sounds like you've been blessed. You don't understand, the first man interrupted. Last week, my great aunt passed away. I inherited almost a quarter of a million dollars. Now his friend was really confused. Then why do you look so sad? The man groaned and said, this week, nothing. (laughs) Now that's funny, but perhaps it does illustrate in an exaggerated way a certain attitude towards life, a perspective that can come out of us humans. Once again, what have you done for me lately? For one to be thankful, they need to keep their heart focused on what is important. And to do that, we need to stay tuned into the correct frequency. Do you hear all the local radio stations in your ear right now? They are present, but for one to hear them, they have to have a radio tuner tuned into the correct frequency to be able to hear to the station that you want to listen to. Like that, our hearts need to be tuned in and focused onto Christ. If we do that, our thanksgiving will morph into not just thanksgiving, but thanks living. So how does one live a thanks type of living? You see, thanksgiving should not be a one day a year event when you are a follower of Christ. It should be a daily approach to life. Allow me to show you this life-changing approach as the Apostle Paul explains it in the third chapter of Colossians. When I typed that, I thought, instead of Colossians, maybe it should be pronounced collisions because it just might wreck some of our bad thinking. I hope so anyway. Look at verse 15 with me. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were also called in one body, and be thankful. Peace will have no place if we let other things or other people rule our hearts. If you only live to please others, there will be no peace. If you only live to disagree with others, there will be no peace. If you only live for you, there will be no peace. If you let worry have its way, there will be no peace. If you let complaining and criticizing control your life, there will be no peace. If you let divisiveness dominate, there will be no peace. If you let guilt grip you, there will be no peace. If you let anger rule, bitterness rule, malice rule, revenge rule, or fear rule, there will be no peace in your life. That word translated rule is a Greek word that describes an official at an athletic event similar to a present-day baseball umpire. See, in the Greek games, there were judges who rejected the contestants who were not qualified and who disqualified those who broke the rules. If you are walking with Christ today, the peace of God will act as an umpire in your heart. When we obey the will of God, we have his peace within But when we step out of that will, we will lose that peace. We must beware, however, of a false peace in our heart. For instance, Jonah deliberately disobeyed God, and yet he was able to go to sleep in the bottom of a ship even during a storm. 
Jonah thought he was at peace, when in actuality, his sins are what created the storm. So when people say, I have peace about this or that, that is not sufficient evidence that we are in the will of God. We must pray and seek the guidance of the scriptures. The peace of heart alone is not always the same thing as the peace of God. There is a danger of a person thinking they're at peace with God when in reality they are just numb concerning their life of sin. The word is always the final authority. So when someone says they have peace about something that contradicts the word, they are always erroneous in their thinking. Yes, the peace of God will rule in your heart, but it will never contradict the wisdom of God as revealed in his word. For example, it doesn't matter how much peace you have. You can be sure that God's peace will never contradict his word. If you are married, God is never going to tell you to divorce your wife of 35 years and marry your 23-year-old secretary. You don't even need to pray about that. Even if you have a quiver in your liver, that is not God. That just might be the burritos you had last night. We can be confident that the peace of Christ guides believers in making decisions. So, when faced with a choice, the believer should consider two factors. First, is it consistent with the fact that he and Christ are now at peace and thus on the same side? And secondly, does it perpetuate the oneness with the Lord that is that believer's possession? These two factors are the two greatest deterrents to sin in the believer's life. Sin offends Christ with whom he is at peace and therefore will shatter the rest of security that we have in our hearts. The end of that verse gives us a three-word command. And be thankful. We are a blessed people to live in this country. No matter how much money we make, we have it far better than many parts of the world. Some of you may remember the comedian Yakov Smirnov. He said when he first came to the United States from Russia, he wasn't prepared for the incredible variety of instant products available in the American grocery stores. He says, on my first shopping trip, I saw powdered milk. You just add water and you get milk. He said, then I saw powdered orange juice. You just add water and you get orange juice. He said, then I saw baby powder, and I thought to myself, what a country. <laughs> but wait a minute. Aren't Christians always a grateful people? Don't we naturally exude gratitude and thanksgiving? No. Gratitude is difficult. But why should gratitude be difficult? I think one reason thankfulness is difficult and why we are therefore required by command to be grateful is that gratitude is unnatural to our flesh. By this, I simply mean that our natural state is to focus on self without being overly concerned about the welfare of others. When Jesus healed the ten lepers, how many returned to thank him? Just one out of the ten. So we see that being unthankful is nothing new. You see, I think negativity is easy. I think complaining is a cinch. It is effortless to gripe, and it's no sweat to dwell on the negative. 
There can even be satisfaction in complaining, especially when you find others who are sympathetic to your complaint. We all enjoy commiserating with others who feel the same negative way that we feel about something. With those who agree that we have been treated unfairly or who agree that this life is just plain unfair. However, being unthankful is a mark of the unregenerate. Listen to how Romans 1.21 puts it. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So let me ask us all, me included, are we a grateful people? Because most people in this world we live in are anything but thankful. In his book, Folk Psalms of Faith, Ray Steadman tells of an experience that H.A. Ironside had at a restaurant. Just as Ironside was about to begin, a man approached him and asked if he could join him. Ironside invited his, him to have a seat, and as was his custom, he bowed his head and said a prayer. When he opened his eyes, the other man said, Do you have a headache? Ironside replied, No. The other man said, Well, is there something wrong with your food? Ironside said, no, I was simply thanking God as I always do before I eat. The man said, oh, you're one of those, are you? Well, I want you to know I never give thanks. I earn my money by the sweat of my brow, and I don't have to give thanks to anybody when I eat. I just start right in. Ironside said, yeah, you're just like my dog. That's what he does also. The great Scottish minister Alexander White was known for his uplifting prayers in the pulpit. He always found something about which to be grateful for. One Sunday, the weather was so gloomy and miserable that one church member thought to himself, certainly the preacher won't think of anything to which to thank the Lord on a wretched day like this. Much to his surprise, however, White began by praying, We thank thee, O God that it's not always like this. One commentator said this, Gratitude unlocks the fullness of life. It turns what we have into enough and more. It turns denial into acceptance, chaos to order, confusion to clarity. It can turn a simple meal into a feast, a house into a home, and a stranger into a friend. Gratitude makes sense of our past, brings peace for today, and creates vision for tomorrow. You may be thinking, okay, I want peace, and I want to be thankful, but what do I do? Next verse, please. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. There is a danger today, as there was in Paul's day, that local churches would minimize the Word of God. There seems to be a lack of simple Bible teaching in Sunday school classes and pulpits in many places. Far more interest is shown in various entertainments than in God's Word. The church shouldn't need fog machines and laser lights to attract people. And so today, you'll even have pastors who will ride on the stage on their Harley. We're never going to do that here. 
for one thing, our stage is too small, and plus, I can't ride a motorcycle. But even if I could, we're not doing it. We never have to worry about us bringing out the prophesying poodles to get your attention. The word dwell there carries the idea of occupancy, or we could say the feeling of being at home. A hard question for some of us is whether the word of Christ, the words of Scripture, the words of the Bible, are they really at home in our hearts? Or are they a stranger? Are they totally unfamiliar? Or are the words of Christ just an occasional visitor? The word of Christ ought to be indwelling, to be added to and refreshed day after day. When your words came, I ate them, and they were my joy and my heart's delight. For I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. These are the words of Jeremiah and should be ours also on a daily basis. Let me ask you. Are God's words your joy and your delight? Many saved people cannot honestly say that God's words dwells in their hearts because they do not take the time to study and memorize it. But in the same way you need to eat to keep up your physical strength, we need to read and study to keep up our spiritual strength. And what happens if you don't eat? In both cases, you will eventually grow weak and then die. The word of Christ refers to the revelation he brought into this world, which is the scripture. Peace and thankfulness, as well as unity, love, and all the required virtues flow from a mind that is controlled by the scripture. Paul calls upon the believers to let the word take up residence and then be at home in their lives. When we become intentional about taking in God's word through reading it, hearing it at church, studying it, memorizing it, thinking on how it should apply to our lives, and then actually applying it, I promise you, good things will begin happening in your life. But today, many say the Bible is old-fashioned. Well, so is the sun. But without it, men grope in physical darkness. And the same is true about the scripture. Without it, men grope in moral darkness. Just turn on the 6 o'clock news if you doubt that. The unfortunate thing is we live in a society which has elevated tolerance as the highest virtue to the exclusion of truth. But that leaves us spineless and weak. We're not talking about tolerance here. We are talking about real biblical love. Josh McDowell describes the difference between the two. He writes, tolerance says... You must approve of what I do. Love responds, I must do something harder. I will love you even when your behavior offends me. Tolerance says, you must agree with me. Love responds, I must do something harder. I will tell you the truth because I am convinced the truth will set you free. Tolerance says, you must allow me to have my way. Love responds, I must do something harder. I will plead with you to follow the right way because I believe you're worth the risk. Tolerance costs nothing. Love costs everything. And so the believer must clean out the old furnishings of his heart to let the word of Christ settle down as a permanent resident. Notice that word richly. It is important. 
For the word of Christ must be allowed to dwell richly within our hearts. The believer is not to be satisfied with just an occasional visit by the word of Christ. He is to let the word of Christ dwell richly in his life. The word of Christ must be allowed to furnish the believer's heart with all the wealth of his commandments and promises and instructions and warnings. The word will transform our lives if we will but permit it to dwell within us richly. If you take notes, I'd write this down and look up the scriptures I'm going to give you later. Each point begins with the letter H. The word dwells in us when we hear it, Matthew 13:9, handle it, 2 Timothy 2:15, hide it, Psalm 119:11, and hold it fast, Philippians 2:16. But to do those things, a Christian must read, study, and live the word. Before we leave this section, we should notice an important parallel with Ephesians chapter 5. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul emphasized being filled with the Spirit. But here in his letter to Colossians, he emphasized being filled with the Word. And the reason is, the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit is the same as letting the Word of Christ dwell in your life richly. Therefore, the two are the same spiritual reality viewed from two sides. To be filled with the Spirit is to be controlled by His Word. And to have the word of Christ dwelling richly within us is to be controlled by a spirit. Since the Holy Spirit is the author and the power of the word, the expressions are interchangeable. Paul then mentions two specific results of the word of Christ dwelling in the believer, one positive and the other negative, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. Teaching is the impartation of positive truth, And admonishing is the negative side of teaching. It means to warn people of the consequences of their behavior. Both, though, are the result of a life overflowing with the word of Christ. However, we must not think that Paul is just writing to individual Christians, for he directed this to the entire church body there. Let the word of Christ dwell among you is actually a possible translation. And as it dwells richly in each member of the church, It will dwell richly in our church fellowship. Peace also wears another face as seen in the context of this verse. It's about how you get along with others, fellow believers who are all members of the same body. Also in that verse, we learn that our singing must be from our hearts and not just from our lips. But if the word of God is not in our hearts, we cannot sing from our hearts. This shows how important it is to know the Word of God, for it enriches our public and private worship. C.S. Lewis in his work, God in the Dock, relates to this. He writes, When I first became a Christian, I thought that I could do it on my own. By retiring to my rooms and reading theology, and I wouldn't go to the churches or gospel halls. And I disliked very much their hymns, which I consider to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. But as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education, and then gradually my conceit just began to peel off. I realized that the hymns were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew, 
And then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. In the days before modern navigation, ships would navigate by a compass, and some would have two. One at the wheel where the captain could see it, and another compass on the top of the mast where a sailor would have to climb up to view it. Once a traveler on the ship asked the captain, why do you also have a compass on the mast? The captain sweat said, well, this boat is made largely out of metal, and often we can't get an accurate reading because this compass is affected by its surroundings. So when we really need to know what direction to go, we always steer by the one on top. I would urge us to do the same thing this morning. Let's steer our lives by the compass on top. We are in this world, but we do not want to get our direction from our surroundings, from our culture, from Hollywood, and from those who don't know God. We want to get our direction from the compass on top. What compass am I speaking of? Once again, the Word of God. It alone has the ability to guide us through these turbulent waters called life. The old hymn captures this perfectly. Jesus, Savior, pilot me over life's tempestuous seas. Unknown waves before me roll, hiding rock and treacherous shoal. Chart and compass come from thee. Jesus, Savior, pilot me. Last verse, please. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The first thing I want us to consider is the phrase, the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, in modern society, we pay little attention to names. But the ancient world held a man's name to be of great importance. Often, during Old Testament days, God changed a person's name because of some important experience or some new development in their life. Well, as Christians, we all bear the name of Christ. Did you know the word Christian is only found three times in the New Testament? And the name was originally given as a term of contempt, but gradually it became a name of honor. The name of Christ then, then means identification. We belong to Christ. Now, every parent tries to teach his children to honor the family name because in just a few minutes, a person can disgrace a name that is taking ancestors years to build. For example, the Hebrew name Judah is a respected name. It means praise. But the New, equivalent, the New Testament equivalent of that is Judas. And who would name their son Judas? Bearing the name of Jesus is a great privilege, but it is also a great responsibility. With that in mind, the simplest, most basic rule of thumb for the Christian life is to do everything, whether word or deed, in the name of the Lord Jesus. To do everything in the name of the Lord is to act consistently with who he is and what he wants. Paul expressed the same thought in 1 Corinthians 10.31 where he writes, Whether then, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Again, Paul reminds us that it's, not, that it's always to be done without reluctance or despair or legalistic duty, but with giving thanks through him to God the Father. All that we say and do 
should be associated with the name of Jesus. By our words and our works, we should glorify his name. And if we permit anything into our lives that cannot be associated with the name of Christ, we are at that point sinning. We must do and say everything on the authority of his name and for the honor of his name. To do everything in the name of the Lord is to act consistently with who he is. And so, if our behavior springs out of the word of God, you can be absolutely sure you're acting and behaving as you should. Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, had a sign over her kitchen sink that said, Divine services held here three times a day. The sentiment of that is, washing the dishes can be an act of worship if you do it in the name of the Lord. But doing dishes and doing dishes in the name of the Lord and then to give thanks to God for the opportunity to do the dishes, that's insanity in the world that we live in. But as we close, if there are activities in your life that you cannot do in the name of the Lord, then I leave it to you this morning to evaluate whether those things even have a place in your life. Note that Paul again mentioned thanksgiving there at the end of verse 17. Whatever we do in the name of Christ ought to be joined always with thanksgiving. If we cannot give thanks for what we're about to do or say, then we had better not do it or say it. Without thankfulness, people become self-centered, self-seeking, and dissatisfied with the body, and there is not any peace. Look, I get it. I know life can be difficult, and the easiest thing to do is to always complain about it. But I also know there is no life in that. I think thanksgiving and thanksgiving are interchangeable. If you do the one, you will do the other, even when it is extremely difficult to do so. The hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, was written after a traumatic events in Horatio Spafford's life. The first was the death of his son at the age of two. And then the 1871 Great Chicago Fire ruined him financially. You see, he had been a successful lawyer and had invested significantly in property in the area there of Chicago that was extensively damaged by the fire. His business interests were further hit by the economic downturn in 1873, at which time he had planned to travel to Europe with his family. But in a late change of plan, he sent the family ahead while he was delayed on, zone, on business concerning zoning problems following the Great Fire. But while crossing the Atlantic, the ship sank rapidly after collision with another boat, and all four of Spafford's daughters were drowned. His wife, Anna, was the only one that survived, and sent him the now-famous telegram, just two dismal, incredibly sad words, saved alone. Shortly afterward, though, as Spafford was traveling to meet his grieving wife, he was inspired to write these words as the ship passed right over where his daughters had died. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And with that last line ringing in our ears, let's all begin being thankful today. And Father, I know just in my own life how incredibly unthankful I can be 
sometimes not even realizing it until you bring it to my attention. I pray, Father, that you make us a thankful people, for we are abundantly blessed in this church and in this country. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. stand and worship the Lord again. Father, we give you thanks. We give you praise and honor and glory.